I'd also like to welcome you to Lakeside this morning. We're glad that you're here. I felt like I told Amy last night, I said, I want to dress up tomorrow like I'm going to a wedding. Because one of my favorite descriptions, a very summary statement of the whole message of the Bible, and it's actually a summary statement of the book of Revelation, which is itself a summary of the entire Bible, uh, that a pastor who I enjoy listening to at times uh, has all of his kids and grandkids around a table say uh, every night after they say the prayer, how do we sum up the message of the Bible? And it's kill the dragon and get the girl. That Christ has been revealed as the bride, as the groom looking for his bride and who will do anything to take out any enemies so that one day there can be a feast and a celebration and a marriage of him with his beloved and a party that will begin and never end and that will only get better and better with time. That's what we're looking forward to as Christians, for Christ to slay the dragon and bring us home into the fullness of all that he intends for us as his followers. And that also means something for me, just spending the last several days at the bedside with Laza and Elena as she has become incredibly weak in her battle with cancer. Tuesday is when it was uh, pretty apparent that she was struggling even to get out of bed, and so they called for help, and they've now had medical attention uh, there at the home every day and, and all night long for her. I actually was with her two Thursdays ago, at her home after she'd just gone back from a long trip to Tennessee where one of her sisters lives and actually all of her siblings had gathered together in Tennessee for some family time and they had a great time. And I saw her the day after she got home and you could tell that just part of that trip had exhausted her body and I was surprised then last Sunday that her and Laza were here in church and it was just a beautiful and an amazing thing to see her. And those of you who are here might remember that what we concluded with last Sunday was just a hymn of encouragement that says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me, that from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. And no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand till he returns or calls us home. Here in the power of Christ we stand. It's very possible that they're listening in on us right now at the home as this service is going on. And this was the very place nine and a half years ago where Ellen stood with Laza and said, for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. And those promises made will be promises kept, sealed forever. And the promise of God to us that he keeps forever is that whatever our lot, whatever our situation, whatever our struggles, whatever our challenges, however good our relationships have or have not been in this life, that he has a celebration for all of us with him forever. And that he will do everything that needs to be done to make that happen for us to enjoy that time with him. That's what we're celebrating every time we get together on a Sunday. 
Because it was on a Sunday when he took on a new physical body and demonstrated to all of his followers that he is who he said he was, that he is the resurrection and the life, and that everyone who believes in him, though they die, yet they will live and live with him forever. It's also been incredibly humbling to see love displayed by all those who are taking care of her. She's got four brothers. She's the youngest of seven. And I told the brothers this yesterday. They're all guys that I look at, and if I was ever in a fight, I'd love for them to be around me, you know, to know that they had my back. They just look like they could crush me like a pop can or something. And then to see uh, an amazing gentleness and care on their part over their sister to just care for her. Uh, is just an amazing and a beautiful thing to see. Andy Milovanchev has been there since Tuesday, each day and each night as a nurse providing direct care. It's just been incredibly humbling to see that pouring of love and sacrifice that is there because of the unity they have in Christ. Many of you have made meals and sent them over over a long period of time, and so I just am now representing the family to say to all of you, thank you, thank you. You have shown your love in so many, so many different ways to them that they just overflow with generosity such that two Thursdays ago when Ellen and I talked for over an hour, one of the things she said is, I I just am not sure if everyone realizes how thankful I am for everything they've done. And I want to be able to express that. I want them to know just how incredibly thankful I am for, for the love that now for over four and a half years has been poured out in quite a powerful and special and unique way. So I'd like, if it's okay, that we just pray for them uh, one more time and for them as a family uh, in these moments that they can't be here with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we lift up our dear sister to you. We thank you for her. We thank you for her strength that she has exhibited. We thank you for her love. We thank you for her willingness to give so generously of herself to minister to many, many others, even in the midst of her own needs. And so I just pray for her now, and I just pray that she would increasingly sense your presence, your love, that You are the resurrection and the life that you keep all of the promises that you have made. And that one of those promises is to forgive us for everything we've ever done and every promise we haven't kept. That we can rest in you and trust in you. And we pray for all those who are just gathered in in love and support and care for their own strength, their own mind, their own hearts. That you would prove to them as we sang that your grace really is enough and that when the trial is greater and the pain is deeper that your grace would be deeper still we pray this in your son's name amen I invite you to take a bible and to open it to the book of Acts We're going to read the first half of chapter 21 and then the first half of chapter 22, but we'll break them up in between.
that we're going through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, leading towards Pentecost Sunday, which for us this year will take place on May 24th. So we're going to kind of speed up our pace through it so that we get to chapter 28 by that Sunday. And so some things we'll have to do by way of summary and paraphrasing, but we encourage you to read everything we don't read um, because it'll be good for you to do so. But we're going to read from chapter 21, the first 14 verses. And what Paul is doing is going to Jerusalem. We said last week he realized that his time was drawing to an end. He knew that he didn't have much time left, and he's taking this trip to Jerusalem fully aware of that. This is on page 930, Acts chapter 21. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to cause and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we had arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people urged them there not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And that's where we'll stop for now. Paul, as his chapter begins, is is taking as many day trips as he can. Most of the sailing was done by day and not at night, and so he's going from town to town, and then he gets to a place where someone's actually willing to go all the way across the Mediterranean instead of just kind of hugging the coastline all the way down, and he wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, and so he takes a bit of a faster route to get there. And it ends with, all along the way, we see people having a sense that Paul himself had that there was danger ahead. And they warn him, they caution him. It says when he lands to, and um, let me say it again because it's slipping my mind by memory, but that when he was in Tyre, they all get together where the disciples come. And we don't know how this happened, but it says that through the Spirit, they were warning him not to go to Jerusalem. And the very next verse says, and so he went. And so they all gather together, the women and the children and everybody, and they have this amazing prayer time on a beach. And they say goodbye to him. And then he gets to the next city in Caesarea, 
And a very dramatic experience happens where he's in the house of Philip and a prophet named Agabus comes and takes Paul's belt, which we're assuming is just lying around somewhere, and he ties up his arms and he ties up his hands. And he says, this is what's going to happen to the person who wears this belt. And then it's not just the disciples who are now trying to talk Paul out of going to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke puts it in the, the first person and in plural as we started to say, Paul, you, you shouldn't do this. There really is danger ahead. I mean, we heard in this city that there's danger ahead. We've now seen this prophet say that there's danger ahead. And so they all try very, very hard to get him not to do it. And so then they realize they can't persuade him otherwise because everything they're telling him is only confirming for him what the Holy Spirit has already told him. He knows that danger is ahead. He knows he could suffer any number of things in Jerusalem. And so for them, what is a warning to maybe not go is just for him a confirmation that what he was told by the Spirit is really true and he needs to persist and move forward in spite of what he's hearing, even though it's being confirmed. And so they say this prayer, let the will of the Lord be done. I don't know if you've ever gotten to the place where you feel like you've prayed everything you can pray. (laughs) You feel like you've said every request and the way you think it needs to be said. You thought of every person that needed uh, to be referred to in the prayer and needs the strength. When you come to the end of it and say, well, what else can you pray? that actually where you end is for most of us where we should start with just this humble acknowledgement to let the Lord's will be done. That he knows better than we do. He's more compassionate than we are. He's stronger than we are. And that in prayer, as often as possible, we are just seeking to align our will with his own, which is always far superior than whatever ideas we could have come up with. And Jesus taught us to pray to the Father and say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what's best. We need forgiveness. We need food. We have all kinds of needs. But one of the main things we need is just for you to act in your wisdom, in your strength, according to your plan, and to help us to not resist that, but just to follow along. And so part of what we're looking at today is just what does it really mean when we say God's will be done? What is his will like? Well, for one, it tells us in the scripture that God does not desire the suffering of the wicked in Ezekiel chapter 33. That when he looks upon the brokenness of this world, broken relationships, broken bodies, whatever it is, and he sees that suffering, it tells us in Ezekiel 33 that God does not desire the death of the wicked. And he doesn't rejoice over the suffering that exists in this world because of sin. And when we get to our New Testaments, we also see how this God who desires that there would not be suffering and made the world originally in a way where no one would suffer was willing on his own to choose to suffer. That the very God who in his will does not desire the suffering of anyone entered into human history and actually chose to suffer for someone. 
and I've seen this in so many different ways in different points in my life, but this own week has been a testimony to that, that when you see someone in pain and you see someone suffering, there is something in you that says, I, I, don't, I, I can't think of anyone that I would desire this upon. I can't think of anyone that has done something so mean or so harsh or so whatever that I would desire them to suffer. And from that very same well, almost immediately comes another desire that says, and if I in some way could take the suffering so that they would no longer have to, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I, I would take it upon myself right now. Any of you who have seen someone you love suffer know what it's like to have that just tension in your heart that at the same time, there's nothing in it that you desire it. But if somehow you knew you could to alleviate someone else, you absolutely would. That's what love does. That's how love looks on people and cares for people. And that just, what is a small instinct in our heart is a testimony of the God who made us and who does not desire or rejoice in any of the suffering that exists. And he who could have stayed away from it all and and never experienced it or felt it himself was willing to choose to do it because he actually could choose to do it on behalf of other people. He could, in offering his life, alleviate a certain type of suffering that people would face. And in his love, he was willing to do that. And so here's Paul. Everyone around him is saying, there's danger ahead. Don't do it. Don't do it. We don't want you to go forward. And yet Paul, in his love for his Lord to want to offer a sacrifice, but then in his ongoing love to try to get this message of the gospel to the very people that need it the most, in his love, he willingly chooses what he does not desire. And so he desires not to suffer, and yet he willingly chooses to. And then... What we're not reading at the end of the chapter 21 is he finally gets to Jerusalem. He finds a convert and one of the first converts, it says, one of the early converts. And so we assume in part that maybe this was a convert that came to Christ on the day of Pentecost. That day when the Holy Spirit was poured out in dramatic fashion. And Paul is there and he stays in his house with all of his guests. And now they're in the city and and tons of people are traveling to Jerusalem because it's festival time. And Paul and then meets with James, the head of the Jerusalem church. And Paul tells him story after story after story of how people have converted to Christ in all of the cities that he's traveled to. And he gives an accounting of what God has been doing in all of these different places, and they rejoice. And in their rejoicing, they say, but Paul, there's something you need to know. All they talk about in regards to you here is that you've forsaken the way. You speak against this temple. You don't follow the law. That you're telling everyone that the things that we care about and that matter most to us, that, that people don't have to care about those things anymore. Your reputation in this city is, is not a good one, which is in part why there was this expectation that he was going to suffer. 
And so Paul has this amazing experience where he's, he's able to document now decades of faithfulness, decades of blessing, decades of God working through him. And they could all celebrate that. And you'd almost say, for someone who doesn't need to prove anything else, right? He's done his work. He's been faithful to it. And they say, so Paul, what you need to do is you actually need to go through a ritual purification before you enter into the temple and go out of your way to not add any offense to the people in the temple. And so Paul does that. There's four other guys who have taken a vow, a Nazarite vow, which means they let their hair grow out for a long period of time. And so those four and Paul get together. They all shave their heads and they go through a ritual purification so that they can basically be made clean again and enter into the temple in a formal way. And so Paul does that. And when he comes back to the temple, someone sees him and says, I've seen that guy. That's the guy we've been talking about who's going all over these cities in the world and saying that this place doesn't matter and these laws don't matter. And it says that they get so worked up so quick that they, they go after him to start beating him. And they accuse him of actually bringing Gentiles into the part of the temple that they were not allowed to go because they, they'd seen Paul with him earlier in the week. So even though he didn't do it, they just made the assumption and in part because They're so angry, the facts don't matter. And so they go after him. And so they're so mad at him for doing something thought of as unclean, they then drag him out of the temple because they intend to end his life. And they can't do that inside the temple because then that will make them unclean and they can't keep worshiping. And so they drag him out and they shut the door. But in view of all of this is a Roman building where there's about a thousand guards stationed to keep an eye on things in Jerusalem and especially on the temple. And someone just sees what's going on and doesn't, doesn't know what exactly it is, but there's a confusion, there's a sense of rioting, and so they need to get down there with their soldiers as quickly as they can, and so they grab Paul. They don't know what he's guilty of, and they say to everyone, they pick him up, and they say, so what did he do? And they keep hearing all these different things that they can't even make sense of what he's actually being accused of or what he's beaten, beaten up for. And so just for his own protection, they now take him back to the barracks. And when they get to the barracks, as they're going up the steps, he says to them, and, and the whole crowd's following because they're just hungry for blood for him. Paul says, can I just take a moment and on these steps, can I say something to everyone? Can I address the people that are so mad at me and so angry right now? And they say, sure. So this is what Paul says in Acts chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness 
From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem and to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And that's where we'll stop. So Paul, he desired not to suffer, yet chose to suffer. He needed not to defend himself and to prove himself worthy to still be someone worshiping in the temple. And yet, he was willing to give. He was willing to go through the purification process. He was willing to go out of his way to try to not offend anyone, even though he had spent decades faithful to God. Willing to sacrifice. And it's so clear that Paul understood the gospel because even though he had been faithful for decades, he never allowed it to make himself righteous. He never allowed himself to get puffed up in his own mind to then say, come on, I mean, how much more can I do? Look at everything I've done. He was willing to do more because he understood that God truly loved him and had forgiven him in such a dramatic way. I've heard it said through Ravi Zacharias, he said, the gospel is the only thing that can humble us without humiliating us and lift us up without puffing us up. And it's a good summary that here's Paul, strong enough in what he believes that he's persisting in spite of what people are saying to him and yet humble enough that he, he doesn't come with any arrogance to the people he's talking. He doesn't try to play any card of who he is. When he shares what God has done, it's just to praise God. It's just to bless him. But one of our temptations is if we don't disobey God, when we do start to obey him, to then allow a spirit of 
judgmentalism to creep into our heart where we become self-righteous to say, well, see what I did this past yesterday? See what I did two days ago? I think I'm doing pretty good. I don't see that person doing anything. I don't see that. And all of a sudden, what was meant to be just a way of showing God we love him has now become an idol in our own heart. And Paul, Paul doesn't struggle with that. And then as he preaches this sermon, not only does he need not yet gives, he seeks not any conflict, yet he identifies with those who are persecuting him. His whole sermon to them is to say, I used to be one of you. I was actually better at it than any of you. This is, this is where I was born. This is where I was educated. And every one of your leaders knows that I was a persecutor of the way. They know it. So I used to do what you're doing right now. I used to not listen. I used to ignore the evidence. I just was so angry. I wanted to go after people. And the entire time, I thought I was right in what I was doing. And then he brings up from decades earlier that when Stephen had been martyred, it's like I was there. I was the one holding their jackets so that the people who harmed him could do that. And Paul, in identifying with them, is therefore not angry at them for what he's doing to him, what they're doing to him, but he genuinely has empathy. He genuinely has compassion for the very people persecuting him because he can identify and remember what it was like to be them. And that's something that should always be true of us as Christians. We should never forget the fact that we were once not Christians. <laughs> that we too were lost, except for the grace of God. So that however many years we get to live and serve and honor God, we should always be able to identify with those who are struggling to believe in him or who think they're right in rejecting him. And to demonstrate that, to say, I used to be exactly like you. I was so passionate about all the things you're passionate about until something happened. And for Paul, he tells the story of his conversion, that he was traveling to Damascus, doing what all of these people are doing. And he says, it was about noon when this light shone. And some commentators suggest, Paul's kind of making the point, it was at the time of the day when the sun could not be any brighter and I was struck by an even greater light. I was blinded by it. Most of us would be blinded by just trying to look at the sun. And Paul is saying at noon, when it couldn't have been any brighter, a greater light came over me and I couldn't see anymore. And when I became blind, then I could finally see who Jesus was. And I heard his voice. And he revealed himself to me. And he invited me into a relationship with him, even though I had been persecuting everyone he loved. It's a greater light that he experienced. And so Paul, if he was given time, he could have gone on a long list of how this had been demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. Here they are at the day of Pentecost. One of the things they're celebrating is how the law was given to Moses. And he could say, guys, don't you remember how Moses' face 
shone bright. That when he came down and he had that law that we look to and we adore and we try to obey with all of our heart. Remember how our forefathers, they weren't even allowed to go up into the mountain because God is so much greater and so much more powerful and his light is so bright that he had to protect everyone from that. And yes, he gave us this great and beautiful and awesome law but in the very way he gave it, he demonstrated that he is, there's so much more that he hasn't told us about himself that we couldn't possibly comprehend. And then he could have told them about when Solomon built the temple in all of its glory and they were getting ready to have a dedication. The presence of God came in the form of a cloud that just filled the temple so that no one could enter in it. And it was this way of telling everyone, no matter how beautiful this temple is, no matter how great it is, you've all built it exactly to the specs that I told you to build it to. But this is still just a picture of the greater beauty and glory and awesomeness and power of God. And so he's appealing to them. In all of your zeal, in all of your love, what you need to come to discover is what I came to discover that none of that is bad. None of that is wrong. This temple is good. This law is good. It's all gift from God. But there is God himself who outshines the sun. And then that becomes the promise at the end of Revelation, doesn't it? That when the new Jerusalem comes, that the presence of God will be such a light to the people that there will be no more need for the sun no more need for a temple because God's presence will be such a light that every one of us will be able to see like we always should have. And as I think about that, I go, I can hear my father's voice singing it. I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. We do, we have a home in glory land that outshines the sun. And then it says, look away beyond the blue so that when you step out, today's a perfect day. It's bright. The sky is blue, very rare here, but it's beautiful to say there's, a, there's something even brighter. There's something even better. There's something that we all are longing for. And the way this chapter ends is that Paul, because it says they don't want to hear anymore. They're not open to his message. So they shut him down and they say, you should kill him. So the Roman guards take him away and then Paul says to them, I'm a Roman citizen too. I'm not just a Jew, but I'm a Roman citizen and so I have a right to a due process of law. And so the guards say, okay, yeah, well, we didn't, we didn't realize that you were also a citizen and so we will basically instill our due process of law and you'll get a fair hearing in front of a court. And it's amazing testimony that Paul's story is different than Jesus's. Paul is, he's, he's being so faithful. He's doing God's will. He desires not to suffer, yet he chooses it. He needs not to defend himself, yet he gives. He seeks not a fight, yet he identifies with his persecutors. He curses not any of what people are doing, yet he talks about this glory that outshines the sun. But he even, even here, Jesus outshines Paul because Jesus never appealed to another authority when everything came down on him. You ever, you ever feel that when you see a, a dramatic display 
of the final moments of Jesus' life. That you're just kind of waiting like every other movie you watch or show you watch to say, at some point, someone's going to break in and stop this. Someone's going to stand up for him. Someone's going to come to their right mind and say, he should not be on a cross. He's innocent. And as you read through the gospel, no one intervenes. No one stops it. He goes all the way to the cross and experiences death. And there was no one who intervened for him because in the cross, Jesus Christ was intervening for you and for me. That's what he was doing for you and for me. Being our substitute. Intervening in our place. And he showed that his light outshines the sun. And Paul realizes, I'm not the new Jesus. I'm not, I, I can only point people to Jesus. I can't give my life in exchange for anyone else. I'm not afraid of danger. I'm not afraid to die. But even the best and most passionate of his followers can never do what he did in that sense. And everything we do has to be pointing back to him to say, you need to see him. You need to see his love. You need to see his willingness, his obedience to do all of these things. He is the one who showed us more than anyone what it means for God's will to be done as he offered his life on the cross. And so it's a challenge for you and me to consider if we've ever committed ourselves to him and accepted that and said, if you did all that for me, God, your will be done. Let me stop trusting in myself. Let me stop just trying harder. Let me stop running from you. Let me say in a humble prayer, your will be done so that all of that love that you poured out for me, I would openly and gladly receive instead of reject. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we pray that as we see the example of Paul, so powerful, so amazing, to seek your face and to do your will, and yet to realize that even in all of that, it was nothing in comparison to your obedience, to your faithfulness, to your sacrifice, all the way to the point of death on a cross. And so I just pray for anyone here who has not in their heart and in their soul and in their mind come to you and said and invited for your will to be done, to trust fully in your righteousness, in your obedience, in your love, in your strength, that right now would be an opportunity and a moment for them to surrender. And that they would discover in such a dramatic way, just like Paul, that your light is brighter, your love is better. And Father, we thank you for everyone that you have put in our lives who has sought to follow you then in daily faithfulness to continue this work. 
And we pray that you would allow that light to shine through us, to continue in everything we do, to point other people to you. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.